I want to encourage you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12. Our text for today is 13, verses 13 through 21. Luke 12, 13 through 21. I really hesitate to preach this morning after Stephen's prayer. I think he pretty much got the point of the text and led us well as he prayed uh, through application. Thank you, brother, for leading us. I really appreciate our elders, Rick, too. Thank you this morning for reminding us uh, about the uh, dignity of human life created in the image of God, how we should be voices for those who can't speak for themselves, and we should uh, certainly continue to honor the image of God as we seek to care for life, especially life in the womb and certainly life outside of the womb as well. Grateful for you, brothers, and how you lead us so faithfully. Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. Remember, as we looked at last week, uh, if you were with us, either present or through our live stream, uh, that Jesus and his disciples are surrounded by a significant crowd. And it's still in that context that we pick up today's passage in verse 13 with this large gathering of people. Luke chapter 12 now, I want to read beginning in verse 13. Luke writes, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for opportunity to read it, to hear it, and now to be challenged by it. Would you teach us and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I was thinking as we were singing earlier the song from the Gettys, My Worth is Not in What I Own, that chorus, as we were singing that, it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, but I'll say it. And I rejoice in my Redeemer, greatest treasure, wellspring of my soul, and I will trust in Him no other. My soul is satisfied in Him alone. As we were singing that, I wondered this, how many of us really mean that? These are easy words to sing. My soul is satisfied in Him alone, but I wonder how many of us truly mean it. Easy words to sing, but our actions our spending, maybe even our giving statements that we receive this week often say otherwise. 
Jesus had a lot to say in his earthly ministry. But it's often noted that he had a lot to say about money. In fact, some point out accurately that Jesus actually said more about money than he did about prayer. The passage before us this morning is one such example. In fact, this parable that we see, this text that we have before us this morning is unique to Luke, and yet it's familiar to us if you have any familiarity with Scripture. Maybe you've heard this parable before. And whenever Jesus speaks to us about money, possessions, wealth, giving, those kinds of things, he talks to us with the assumption that all material things belong to God. Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the working assumption that Jesus and certainly other biblical writers have when they are speaking to us about money. It's out of the assumption that God owns everything. And so with that assumption, Jesus speaks into our lives, certainly his disciples' lives, and certainly to the one that asked him the question about the inheritance. And he helps us to understand a very important lesson that we would do all well to take away. Context is this crowd, same crowd it seems from last time, someone from the crowd speaks up and asks Jesus to settle a family dispute. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus responds. And he responds by making it clear that he had no plan to get involved in the family dispute, but rather to make a more important point about the man's heart, specifically pertaining to greed and covetousness. That's really the point that he makes. This is really the overriding, the, the overarching point of this text is simply be on guard against greed and all covetousness. what he says in verse 15. I think this is important for us to understand. This this idea of covetousness, this idea of greediness, the excessive desire to have more and more and more, not being content with what God has provided. I think this is an important lesson as well to take away as we prepare to see what Jesus has to say about it that this is an important lesson, not merely for the rich. It's also an important lesson for the poor. This is not, the the issue of covetousness and greediness does not discriminate. The disciples were largely poor, comparatively speaking. And it was just as an important lesson for them as it was for the person asking the question from the crowd about the inheritance and certainly an important lesson for all of us. 
So the question is this, why is this warning against covetousness, especially in light of materialism, possessions, wealth, so important? Why would Jesus take the time to press in against this issue? I think that we see three reasons from this passage. Three reasons from this text that we take away as to why we need to understand that covetousness must be fought against, why greed is such a hindrance to our lives. Think about that. Covetousness, is, it's, one of, it's, it's a sin that's it's often a subtle sin. I don't know many people that come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with covetousness. It's, it's, it's subtle, and it's often very difficult to detect in our own hearts and lives. And it's important that we address it because it's a root sin, we could say. It's a foundation by which many other sins grab hold of and build from. So Jesus gives us this morning three reasons as to why greed, I'm going to use the word greed, just easier to say than covetousness, meaning the same thing, it's desire for more and more, why it's important to fight against and to root out in our lives. Number one, first reason is that greed misses the aim of life. Greed misses the aim, the point, the purpose of life. Jesus is presented with this dilemma, this question of sorts. Really, it's a command he's given. Teacher, tell my brother to do this. Doesn't really ask him, does he? He's just telling him, do this. Tell, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said, man who made me a judge or arbitrator over you. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. His response is pretty simple. Listen, I'm not getting involved in your family dispute, but you need to understand this. You really should be on guard against greediness, desiring more and more and more and more. There's a greater problem at hand than simply the dispute with your family about how to divide up the inheritance. The greater problem at hand is your heart, and that's what he seeks to address. Watch out that your heart isn't being driven by covetousness or greediness. And here's the key. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is saying that that greed creates a distortion about what life is, about how life comes and how life is sustained, and that ultimately our life is not defined by our possessions or our wealth. The Bible has a lot to say about greed, about covetousness, and why it's something we must seek to put to death. For one, it prioritizes the creation over the creator, Romans 1. It prioritizes the creation over the creator. In other texts, Paul says this, he uses this language, he says, covetousness is idolatry. Ephesians 5, verse 5, Colossians 3, verse 5. Things we possess, our wealth, often become a God that drives our heart 
to pursue things as being ultimate in this life. And that's exactly what the world leads us to do, isn't it? Think about that. How often, how often are people valued, defined, and accepted based upon what they do, where they live, and what they have? And so that subtly begins to to creep into our hearts at an early age and and it begins to to just lurk in the the recesses of our hearts and that becomes our goal. The more that we have, the more successful and accepted we become. Brothers and sisters, our life was never intended to be defined by the things we have. We don't find life through accumulating possessions. Yes, things can be enjoyed, helpful, but they aren't ultimate. I like what C.S. Lewis once said. He said, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has God alone. This word that Jesus gave certainly had relevance for this man and his dispute with his brother. And he's addressing now, Jesus is addressing this this issue of how possessions and wealth can become idolatrous. It distorts, it, it diverts our pursuit of where true life is found and enjoyed. Such an important word for us in our context, in our time and day, isn't it? You and I live in one of the wealthiest nations on the planet, if not the wealthiest, and one of the wealthiest areas in the nation. Most of us aren't hurting too much. Most of us aren't wondering where the next meal's coming from. In fact, if you compare us to the global population, the majority of us would be ranked in the top 5% of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, I know that's somewhat misleading and relative based upon cost of living, taxes, other considerations, but the point is true. We are, generally speaking, a well-off people, a wealthy people. And listen, what Jesus is saying here, wealth is dangerous. It it can become an idol that takes root in your heart and consumes everything you seek in this life. His point here is simple. Don't be upset if you got cheated out of an inheritance. Why? Because life does not consist of possessions. Our life is not defined by stuff. Think about that. There are two things, at least two things, that a college-educated wealthy professional, a high school-educated blue-collar worker, and a person struggling to get by on government assistance, three different kinds of people, two things they all three have in common. One, they're all created in the image of God, and two, they enter and leave this world with the exact same thing. 
Because our lives should not be valued based upon what we have. Our lives should not be valued based upon our tax brackets. Materialism is a dangerous distraction for so many of us. One reason is, as Randy Alcorn put it in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, said that materialism is a fruitless attempt to find meaning outside of God. So then, friends, let's be on guard against greed, against covetousness. Be on guard against materialism, for it leads you to find life and view life through the, in the wrong places and through the wrong lenses. Think about that. Whenever our hearts are fixated on the things that we don't have, then our joy is diminished in the thing that truly matters. And it's true for all of us to some degree. We, we, we all can give examples of, of how we are fixated on the things that we don't have. And it begins to become a, a, something of driving, consuming matter. How can we have that next best thing? It's greed, covetousness, misses the aim and point of life. Number two, second reason we see that Jesus gives here as to why it should be put to death is that greed fuels our selfish desires. Jesus in this text, he is giving us a warning, be on guard against covetousness, and then he gives an example or an illustration of why it's such a bad thing. And, and we see that it's fueling selfish desires. And so he goes on to illustrate his point, his warning, through this parable. And here we have a rich man Right? He told them a parable, verse 16, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? This rich man has a windfall. He has a, an abundant crop. And so he looks around and says, well, I don't have enough room to store it all, so I'm going to tear down my small barns and build bigger ones so that I have ample room." So this rich man has a highly successful year with his crop. The land he owned produced abundantly. And at first glance, this, this, this man's behavior seems reasonable, if not commendable. His abundant crop seems to have come about honestly. There's no hint at all here that he was making money by taking advantage of others. It seems to me that the land was blessed and the results seemed to have come from an honest day's work. He seems to demonstrate wisdom. He sees that the present barns are too small, and so he tears them down and he builds bigger ones to adequately store the great yield so that none goes to waste. But the problem begins to be revealed in this man's heart when we begin to get a little glimpse of his perspective and motives. You go to verse 17. We begin to see that. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. You see the, the language he uses? 
You begin to see the frequent presence of the pronoun my, as well as the numerous first-person singular verbs. I have nowhere to serve or to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, do you hear the language there? This language suggests an exclusive self-interest that sees all that he has as the product of his work, and therefore he is the one that will benefit from it and no one else. His conclusion is, look at all I've got. I'm going to tuck it all away for my enjoyment. I'm going to eat abundantly, steak. I'm going to relax. I'm going to drink some good craft beer and be merry. These are all mine, my crops, my barn, my grain, my goods. The main problem in this parable is exposed. The problem is not the man's wealth. The problem is not necessarily the bigger barns. After all, he didn't acquire his wealth immorally and he's wisely made provision to store his goods. The problem is in his heart, and it's at least twofold. One, he does not give thanks to God and honor God with what he's got. He, he doesn't recognize that any of this was a blessing from God at all. These are my things. I've done this, and therefore I will do this. And, number two, he only uses his possessions to serve his own self-interest. Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this, this perspective. One, that, that wealth is not sinful in and of itself, but it is dangerous. Jesus is not condemning wealth or even big barns. He's condemning the selfish use of it and the lack of recognizing where it came from. And as such, this parable pushes us, of course, to consider our own hearts regarding wealth, possessions, things. Friends, how do we, how do we view the things that God has generously given us do you, do we, do, do you see the things we have, the things you have as gifts from God to steward, to use for good in this world? Or do you merely see them as deserved fruit from hard labor? I've worked hard for these things, therefore I'm going to enjoy these things. Are we, are we quick to recognize that God owns everything and therefore give him thanks for what we have? Are we more prone to pile up treasure for ourselves in this life or do we see our possessions and wealth as a God-given means to bless others? When you receive a raise, or you're giving us, given a stimulus check, whether or not you want it or not, 
or you get a tax refund. What's your first thought? What's your first thought when those things come your way and you receive unexpected blessing? Is it how you can advance your little kingdom or invest in others? Is generosity your first response with wealth or does compassion often take a back seat? Now, friends, the point of this passage is not at all. The Lord can do with it what he wants by his spirit, but the point, I'm I'm not trying to, to heap unnecessary guilt upon you the next time you go buy something. I am trying to suggest that we should understand what we have as all being given to us by God and that we're ultimately called to steward what we have to do good for the kingdom of God and not just build our own little personal kingdoms in this world that will one day dissolve. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. And some would hear these things and grow discouraged even because of financial limitations. It's not intended to cause those of you who may be in financially challenging circumstances to feel unnecessarily guilty. This idea of generosity ultimately is about an attitude of the heart, a posture of your heart, a perspective by which you view life and the world, not about amounts. And Jesus here is going into that heart whether rich, whether poor, whether with lots of means or with little means. What is our reaction to the things that we have? He hits on another issue here as well, doesn't he? The, the issue of hoarding, accumulating in abundance for ourselves. Hoarding is this sinfully self-indulgent attitude that stems from the perspective that this life is all we have. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And yet this parable, the correction of this, the the correction this parable is addressing in our hearts is that it's calling us to prioritize generosity over selfishness. It's a call to us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to think about the things you have and the opportunities you have to do good in the world for the kingdom to bless others. I think a good question to ask is, are we truly loving our neighbor as ourselves? If we are greedily storing up money and things for the future when our neighbor has legitimate needs in the present. Now I say all of that knowing who I'm talking to. I know that we have a generous congregation. 2020 was a year to remember in many ways. A global pandemic hit, all but paralyzed many aspects of our lives, impacted many ministries and churches, some of which will never open their doors again. And yet 2020 was the strongest giving year for Redeeming Grace Baptist Church ever. So I want to affirm you 
I don't see your individual giving record, so I have no idea what you give. But I, I see the giving as a whole, and I say with many of our other leaders, praise God for a kind and generous people. You are generous. And so my hope is that a parable like this would encourage you. You would hear this and say, yes, this is what I strive to be and this is how I strive to live and and I want it to affirm you in your generosity because that is the attitude the Lord delights in and honors. And I don't know the motives of your heart, but it seems to me that, that we're not a people here at Redeeming Grace that sees a budget number and say, let me give until we hit that number and then we'll stop. You don't give to, to hit a number and you don't give to get benefit on your taxes. You, you seem to give as an honor, honorable act of obedience to the Lord because you know that all is his. But for some of us, for some of you, This passage may very well expose, and maybe to some degree all of us, because we know we're not perfect in our generosity. This passage may very well expose our self-indulgent tendencies. We all have them. And so the call to us from this parable would be to heed the warning Jesus gives here about selfishness and greed, and to repent See, greed exposes the selfishness of our own hearts. Martin Luther once said, I've tried, to keep, I've tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all. But what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. Because that's the, the attitude of the heart that we want to live from. That we would see the the activity of this man as on the surface doesn't seem wrong, but when you begin to see his heart, and I think Jesus does a good job here, obviously, of exposing his heart and his tendencies through the, through the text, you see that he is living merely for himself without reference to God's blessings and without any desire to do good to others. And that is the problem. Greed only fuels self. Third reason Jesus gives is this. Greed distracts us from eternity. Verse 19 says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for your many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And then the very next verse, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In the parable, Jesus shows us that as the man was rejoicing in all that he had, on the very night he's rejoicing, he died and was standing before the Lord to give account. One moment he was greedily rejoicing over all that he had and planning all of his self-indulgent ways for the future, and the next minute he's standing before God. The failure of this man was that he didn't realize 
He was accountable to God for all that he owns. And God confronts him directly, doesn't he? Against fool, this night your soul is required of you. It's a sobering reminder that we will all be called to account one day. And that on that day when we stand before God, we are not going to stand before God and say, look at all I have, Lord. Look at my possessions. Look at my wealth. I mean, look how successful I was. And the Lord's going to look at us and say, oh, yeah, you're right. You did really well. Come on in. He's not going to say that. Friends, the only way that we will have a right standing before God is not in the things that we possess and accumulate for ourselves. The only way that we'll have a right standing before a holy God is to be clothed in the righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ and cleansed by his blood alone. Our only hope to stand righteously before a holy God is that we be accepted by him through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. See, the man here in the parable didn't realize that his life was on loan from God and that God had a right to demand the return of that loan at any time. Life is not a right, it's a gift. It's on loan from God to steward for his glory. As the man stands before God to have to give account, it's obvious that this man's covetousness is being rebuked. God is not pleased with him. God asks him a rhetorical question. This night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? The obvious answer to that question is, is the one person who will not be enjoying all of these things will be this man. The very one who had planned for and hoped for a life of ease is now standing before God facing eternity. All his plans, all his desires came crashing down in a moment and at this point it was too late. In 1888, Alfred Noble was reading a newspaper and immediately dropped his head and put his hand or his head in his hands. Noble was a Swedish chemist who made his fortune producing dynamite. And in recent days, his brother Ludwig had died. But as Alfred read the paper. He was reading what he thought would be his brother's obituary, but instead it was his own. An editor had confused the brothers and had listed Alfred's name instead of the brother. And to compound his grief even further, the headline read, The Merchant of Death is Dead. As Alfred Noble read his own obituary, this obituary described a man who had grown rich by helping people kill each other with dynamite. And he was grieved over that being the assessment of his life. And obviously shaken by this review of his life, Nobel resolved to use his wealth to change his legacy. And when he did die some eight years later, he left more than $9 million to a fund that awarded, that 
brought about awards for people whose work would benefit humanity, and these awards became known as the Nobel Prizes. You see, Nobel had had been given a rare opportunity. He was able to look at an appraisal of his life at its end, or at least a presumed end, and he still wasn't given time to change. Most of us don't get that kind of opportunity, yet... I think in some ways that's what this parable is given to us for. Through this man, we are taken to the end of our lives and ask an all-important question about where our treasures are. Friends, we've all been given an allotment, some more, some less, but it all belongs to the Lord. And we have a strategic opportunity in this life, to do good for eternity, for the sake of the gospel, for the advance of God's kingdom. To reference Randy Alcorn again, he writes in the same book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. He said, five minutes after we die, we will all know exactly how we should have lived. So ask yourself, five minutes after I die, What will I wish I would have given away while I still had the chance? Friends, this parable is the ultimate you-can't-take-it-with-you parable. And it serves as a warning to us not to put our hope and to base our life on riches and possessions. Although riches and possessions may be enjoyable for the short term, they will not last these kinds of riches and possessions. Earthly riches and possessions will not last for the long term. Proverbs 11 verse four says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Friends, Jesus, he's not condemning riches. He's not condemning wise planning. What he condemns is the heart that seeks to do with the things that we've been given and how we seek to use it. Is it used for us, for our sake, for our own little kingdom, or is it used for the good of others and the glory and praise of God? Do we take the blessings that God has given us, thank Him, and then steward them for the good of others, or do we simply just see it as a result of our hard work and therefore our joy alone? Verse 21, we could say maybe is the punchline, so to speak, the admonition to all of us. After he confronts the man and God confronts him on the day in which he was called to give account, we read, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Rich towards God. Brothers and sisters, this is a a call for us to examine our own lives. Is it clear that you value God, that you value the kingdom of God, that you value the gospel, that you value eternity more than you value anything else? This is a call here, a command, an admonition, if you will. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. It's a warning. Don't be like this guy 
When you're all of a sudden you're called to stand before God and give account and you have nothing to say, you're just speechless because you realize at that moment that you live this life for you and you alone and not for the Lord and for that which will last beyond this world, beyond this life. All of us will stand before the Lord one day And what you truly treasure will be seen on that day for what it truly is. Wealth and possessions can be blessings that God gives for us to enjoy, yes. But he's also given us these things to deploy and use for the good of his kingdom. So I leave you with this question. When you leave this world, will you be known as one who has accumulated treasures on earth you couldn't keep? Or will you be known as one who invested treasure in heaven you couldn't lose? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak into our lives in every way. We thank you, Lord, that you expose things in us that perhaps we often don't see. And this morning, as we think about greed and coveting, Father, we realize there's some place in our heart that often yearns for more and more and more. And yet these things often do not reflect your priorities. So, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning and would you confront us where we are greedy and covetous? Father, would you show where we are laying up treasures for ourselves in this world and not laying up treasure in heaven? Would you help us to be a people who, long after we're gone, that that the testimony of our lives would, would not be, look at this one who accumulated for themselves treasures on earth they could never keep, but that this was a person who invested treasure in heaven they could never lose. Father, help us to be a follower of Jesus that reflects these things. Lord, we we realize this morning that there is much in this area of our lives that we see. And Father, even the things that we don't see, would you show us and expose them, expose our greed. Help us, Lord, with contentment. Help us, Lord, to be quick to give you thanks for all that we have, realizing all that we have belongs to you. Lord, help us to see rightly. Lord, it's often difficult when we live in a world that gives us so many different messages and encourage us encourages us towards different approaches to life. Lord, forgive us for our greediness and help us to be a people who prize and treasure you above all else and that we would be a people known for generosity, known for being rich towards God. Lord, we need your help in this. We pray for it. Help us by your spirit to be a generous people who are quick to give you thanks, to give you praise, 
and a people who are quick to do good for the sake of your name and your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.